This message by Wayne Grudem titled Biblical Manhood and Womanhood in Creation and in Marriage is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the second main session at our 2004 Leadership Conference. Dr. Grudem is Research Professor of Bible and Theology at Phoenix Seminary and is a co-founder and past president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I want to talk about men and women, biblical manhood and womanhood in creation and in marriage. For 30 or 40 years now, loud voices in the media, in schools, colleges, loud voices in our society have been trying to tell us that there are no differences between men and women. No real differences, just obvious physical differences, and that's all. And many Christian books, books from Christian publishers like InterVarsity Press and Baker Books and others have been telling us the same thing. But deep down, we know that's not right. We have a sense that God made us to be different. We might hesitate, we might hesitate to say it, though, because, <clears throat> well, our society is hostile to that idea in many quarters. We fear people might call us sexist or something or... Or because we know that even within the Christian world, there are differing viewpoints, differing opinions. What if we're wrong? And all that controversy and confusion robs us of the joy of being men and women. Men and women are confused. What is it to be a man? What is it to be a woman? How can you tell me how I should act differently because I'm a man or a woman? And people don't get clear answers. Well, I, I believe, as I read Scripture, I'm, I believe that God created us as male and female from the beginning... And then in Genesis 1.31, God looked at all that he had made, and that included Adam and Eve as male and female. He looked at all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's God taking delight in what he had made, and especially in us as he created us. So I think God made it, I think he intended it to be fun for us to be women or to be men, whatever God has made us to be. I think he intended it to be fun to be a man. I think he intended it to be fun to be a woman, and it's something we should enjoy. But the controversy has tended to rob that from us. So the question is, do we like it? Do we enjoy it? Do we like it that God made us to be equal and different? Equal as men and women, equal as persons in God's sight, but different as men and women as well. I hope by the end of tonight we'll have a deeper sense of confidence uh, in knowing what God's Word teaches about this and also a greater joy and appreciation in it. So I'm going to talk tonight about five key issues in the manhood and womanhood controversy and the way forward. Key issue number one, men and women are equal in value and dignity. Genesis 1:27. so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. To be in the image of God means to be like God and to represent him on the earth. It's a privilege that's given to no other creature, not even the angels, great and powerful as they are, are said to be in the image of God. Just you and I, as human beings, are made in the image of God. We have that great privilege, that great status. We're the pinnacle of God's creation. And we share that status equally. Because the first verse in the Bible that tells us that he created us also says that he created us in his image and tells us that he created us as male and female. We both share in that great privilege of being in the image of God. Now... That means that page one of the Bible, <clears throat> page one of the Bible, corrects the errors of male dominance and male superiority that have come as a result of sin and have been seen in nearly all the cultures in the history of the world. This happens whenever uh, certain things occur, whenever men are thought to be better than women. 
Whenever husbands act as selfish dictators in their marriages, wherever, wherever wives are forbidden ever to have their own jobs outside the home, now that can be a matter of individual preference, I understand, but where, where there's just a forbidden so women can't work at all, or women are forbidden to vote, or, or, or women are for, or prohibited from being educated, wherever women are treated as inferior, wherever there is abuse or violence against women, or the horrors of rape, or female infanticide, or polygamy, or harems, wherever that happens, the biblical truth of our equality in the image of God is being denied. And to all societies and all cultures where these things occur, we must proclaim that the very first page of God's word bears a fundamental and irrefutable witness against these evils. We are both created in the image of God. We stand equal in value and personhood and dignity before him. I was walking through an airport one day and I saw this article, USA Today, front cover, No Girls Allowed. It shows a picture of a doctor performing an ultrasound in Meerut in India. And the cover story says, Asian's desire for boys leaves deadly choice. As you read on in the, in the article, uh, the person being interviewed said in this ultrasound clinic, way over 95% of the pregnant women who come for an ultrasound, if it's found that they're pregnant with a girl rather than a boy, they'll have an abortion. And the article goes on to, well, to say this, lopsided sex ratios throughout Asia in North Africa are the result of Sex selection by abortion, female infanticide, that's putting little girls to death. The abandonment of baby girls, the preferential feeding and health care of boys, and these all contribute to, to imbalanced ratios in the population. So it quotes Professor Amartya Sen, who was then a Harvard professor. He's now won a Nobel Prize, and he's at Trinity College in Cambridge. But it quotes Professor Amartya Sen as saying there are now more than 100 women, quote, missing in the population of the world from what there should be by ordinary demographic predictions. It's hard even to think about or imagine the tragedy that that represents. Over 100 million lives lost because people were female rather than male. It's an unimaginable tragedy. And it doesn't stop with the number of lives lost. Because think, think what would happen if you were a little girl growing up in that culture and you survived. The constant message that you would be hearing from as young an age as you could remember would be, I wish you were a boy. Boys are better than girls. And the dehumanizing, destructive effects in the self-image that these girls and then women have is impossible to measure. Page one of this book says that's wrong. It says that's wrong. It says we are created equal in the image of God. And if we're equally uh, valuable as persons, if we're equal in our status as in the image of God, then, then God counts us as equally value. And if God counts us as equal in value, then that settles the question of worth for all time. 
I want to say to the women here, and I want you to say to all the women to whom you minister, do not receive the lie that comes from one part of every culture and every society, the lie that says, as a woman, you are inferior to men. You're less important. God says you stand beside men as equal in value and equal in dignity and equal in importance to him and equal in personhood. Do you receive it? Do you receive it? Do you believe it in your heart? And men, I want to say to all of you men here, and I want you to say, to be able to say with confidence to the men to whom you minister, do not receive the lie that comes from a part of the world's culture in every society that says you are superior, you're more important, you're more valuable. It's a lie. It's not from God. I was thinking about these things one night. I was, <clears throat> I'd been studying and looking and reflecting on, on Genesis 131, how we're created equal in God's image. And then put aside my studies, went to bed. The next morning, I woke up <clears throat> before Margaret did, and I opened my eyes and looked at her sleeping there beside me. And I began to reflect on these things, and I began to say over and over again, <clears throat> just out loud but not loud enough, to wake her up, but so that it would affirm it to me, I began to say, you are equal to me. 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 And it felt so good. It felt so right. It felt so pleasing to God to affirm that. Looking back on our marriage, I don't think I listened very well to Margaret early in our marriage. <clears throat> we're different. We're very different in personalities. And we take these tests that tell you what kind of personality you have, and she comes out at 99% in one area, and I come out at 1%, that, well, or something like that. And, those are, and so we're different, and I suppose that's why we were attracted to each other. But what that means is that we reach conclusions differently, and we reason differently. And <clears throat> oftentimes when we'd have a decision early in our marriage, should we do A or B, Margaret would say, well, B. And I would say, well, here are four reasons why we should do A. <laughs> and she wasn't into giving a lot of reasons. She just knew instinctively. She processed things fast. And, 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 so, and, then, and, then, and then if she began to give reason back, then I gave 17 reasons why her reasons were wrong. <laughs> and, you know, she said later, later... Um, just through the help of some friends and through going to something a long time ago called Marriage Encounter, where we were able to understand each other a little better. We made a lot of progress, and I think we do a lot better in that area today. But Margaret said, looking back, that it often felt as if her voice was taken away. Because if you give your opinion 10 times, 20 times, 30 times, and it's disregarded, you feel it doesn't matter what you say, and you stop. And it often felt to her as if my ears were closed. Because she'd speak and I wouldn't hear. And so we're equal. We're equal in value before God. And our equality means that, that we need to respect and honor one another, even though we may have many differences in preferences and the way we decide things and the way we articulate things, just valuing those different preferences and valuing those different opinions does a lot to affirm that equality in honor and value before God. So we have to start here. 
we start, when we talk about manhood and womanhood in Scripture, we start where the Bible starts, not with our differences, but with our equality in the image of God. And pastors and those of you who do Bible teaching, I want to say especially to you, if you don't start here speaking about equality first, I don't think you're going to get a hearing. And if you don't start here, I don't think your hearts are going to be right. You know, I think that one reason that God, that God has allowed this massive controversy into the church at this time in history is so that we could get some things straightened out in this regard, so that we could correct some wrongful traditions and some wrongful things that have been done historically and we could become more faithful to Scripture. So that's key issue number one. Key issue number two. Men and women have different roles in marriage as part of the creation, created order. Now, I'm going to warn you at the beginning. I have five points to this message. This one's the long one. It has ten subpoints. Um, but uh, let's, and I'll try to go through it quickly, but don't think that everyone is going to take this long. Key issue number two, men and women have different roles in marriage as part of the created order. Now, before I go on to talk in more detail about marriage, I want to say just a word here. Some of you here tonight are single. And I know that many of you are ministering to those who are single. And I want to just say, I'm going to be talking a lot about marriage within the rest of this hour. Why do I talk about marriage when I'm talking about manhood and womanhood in general? It's because, first, much of the biblical material on how we relate as men and women deals with marriage. Adam and Eve were married. Abraham and Sarah were married, etc. Genesis 1 and 2 then talks about marriage. And then, second, frankly, this is where the controversy is. It focuses on husbands and wives and how they relate to each other. But then, third, I wish someone had told me these things when I was still single, uh, just to sort of get a picture of what biblical marriage should be like. But is there application of these truths to singles, to single men and women? First, I want to say one thing very clearly. Nowhere does the Bible say that all women are to be subject to all men. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands in Ephesians 5. It doesn't say to be subject to all husbands or everybody else's husband. It's enough of a challenge to have one husband for a lifetime, I understand <laughs> So the biblical picture, the biblical picture of how we relate to each other to whom we're not married is a picture of brother and sister, of brother and sister. And that's also the picture of how I am to relate to every other woman in my church to whom I'm not married, every other woman other than my wife, brother and sister. And yet, having said that, I think there are faint echoes of our differences as men and women in the way we relate to each other in varying circumstances. And so for singles, I want to say, don't try to make yourselves exactly like each other. Don't be afraid to let yourselves be different and be thankful and joyful for your manhood and womanhood. And remember, uh, Jesus was single. Paul was single. Many who have done great work for the kingdom of God are single or have been single. And John Stott is one who comes to mind, who's taught the Bible all around the world, maybe over 100 nations now, and has been free to do that because he never married. And to all who are married here, I think I should also say, remember that you have been single at one point in the past. And for half of us anyway, unless the Lord returns, our spouse will die first. And then there will be a time when we're single again. 
And in heaven, Jesus says there is no marrying or giving in marriage. And that means that being married is not necessary for heavenly happiness. And there are more wonderful relationships in heaven than there are here. So I want to say that first, even though I'm concentrating on marriage. There are some words of application to those who are single. But now let's look at the Bible. Are there indications that there was a leadership role for Adam before there was any sin in the world? That's the question. Are there indications that there was a headship or leadership role for Adam before the fall? Because a fundamental claim of evangelical feminists, or what we also call egalitarians, a fundamental claim is that male headship was a result of sin. And if it's true that we can show that it's, it's part of how God made us, then, of course, it provides a pattern for us to follow today. So I think there are ten indications that Adam and Eve had distinct roles before the fall. Number one, the order. Adam was created first, then Eve. And we see that in Genesis 2. First God created Adam and then put him in the garden to tend it, to keep it. Then he brought him the animals uh, to uh, find a helper suitable for him. He named the animals and then God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam out of the rib that God took from his side, uh, made Eve as a wife for him. So there's an order of creation. Now, we may not see that as a big deal, but Paul sees it as important. In 1 Timothy 2.13, he sees it as a basis for how men and women should relate to each other uh, in the church. And he goes all the way back and gets that pattern from creation. And he sees there's a leadership role that, uh, that he could derive uh, even in the, the church age that derives from uh, how Adam and Eve were created. There was an order. Number two, the representation. Number two, the representation. Adam, not Eve, had a special role in representing the human race. Now, if we think back to the story of the fall, you you remember probably who sinned first, who took the forbidden fruit first. It was Eve. So we might think that when the Bible talks about how we became sinners, you might think that it would talk about us inheriting sin first from Eve because she was the first sinner. But it doesn't say that. In fact, it says that we inherit a sinful nature because of Adam. So uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. It doesn't say, for as in Eve all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. It's as in Adam. Adam had a leadership role, a headship role, with regard to the human race that Eve did not have. Number three, the naming of woman. In Genesis 2.23, then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In the Bible, naming is a very important function. Remember how God names Abra- changes Abr- Abram's name to Abraham or Sarai's name to Sarah. The name designates the character of a person. And the person who gives the name is someone who has authority with respect to that person. And so even in these early chapters of Genesis, God uh, uh, names the day and the night, and, um, and Adam names the animals as God brings them to him. God, God names uh, things, and then Adam names things, and there's this, an assumption that the person who gives the name is in authority. Now, the egalitarians object, and they say, this can't be. Uh, because Adam doesn't really name uh, Eve there. He doesn't give her the name Eve until Genesis 3, 
where it's called, she's called the mother of all living, and that's after the fall. And this isn't really naming. The problem is that the Hebrew word kara that is used there um, that says she shall be called, for the, the word to, to call is kara, and that's the same word where God called the... Uh, um, the uh, light day and the darkness night. It's the same word where Adam called each name to the animals. And so in this context of giving names to major parts of creation, of course it is giving Eve a name. Now, they say, well, it didn't give her a specific name, Eve. It just gave her the general name woman. Well, that fits. And I suppose when Adam named the animals, he, you know, he gave names like whatever the Hebrew equivalent would have been for horse and cow and dog and cat he didn't call them you know rover and bambi and things like that giving specific personal names it's giving general category names and so yes it is i think there's a leadership role represented with uh, naming eve number four the naming of the human race god named the human race man and not woman god named the human race man and not woman here we go over to Genesis 5, but it refers back to something that occurred before there was sin. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man in the day when they were created. The Hebrew word there, translated man, is Adam. That's been used more than a dozen times in the first four chapters of Genesis to refer to man in distinction from woman. So, for instance, it's used in the verse that says, The man and his wife were naked, and they were not ashamed. The man and his wife. And so there, Adam refers to the man specifically. And so now when we come to Genesis 5, this Hebrew word Adam, which has either been used as a proper name for Adam, or it's been used just to refer to the man in distinction from the woman, now God says, I'm going to name the whole human race Adam, man. God does not name the human race uh, a Hebrew equivalent of woman. He doesn't name the, Hebrew, the, the whole human race uh, anything that would be like humanity. He gives the human race a name that would represent the race, but has also been used to designate the man in distinction from the woman. Raymond Ortland, in a wonderful chapter in the book Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, said that the naming of the human race man whispers male headship. It, it's, just a, it's a slight indication that there's a leadership role. Number five, the primary accountability. After Adam and Eve sinned, uh, though Eve had sinned first, when God comes into the garden and speaks to them, Genesis 3, 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Called to the man, singular, and said to him, where are you? Singular. Said to him, singular, where are you? Singular. When, um, when our children were younger, uh, if I'd come into a room and the three of them had been playing there and I walked in the room and noticed that it was just trashed. It was absolute chaos in the room. The first thing I would say would be, Elliot, what happened? Why? He's the oldest. He had more response. They were all responsible, but he had a primary responsibility. Elliot, what happened? I call him to account first. And when God comes back into the garden, he calls to the man and calls him to account first. He's saying, Adam, what happened? What happened in your family? Give an answer. So the primary accountability also indicates, I think, that before the fall, there was a leadership role for Adam that Eve did not have. 
Number six, the purpose. The purpose. Eve was created for Adam, not Adam for Eve. And Genesis 2.18 says, I will make him, literally I will make for him, a helper fit for him. Now, we need to realize that the word helper is not at all a demeaning term. Helper is used often to speak of God in the Bible, who is our helper. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's a cognate term to this word, azer, help. But, and, and and so before I go to the but, that means that the role of being a helper in any situation is a dignified role. It's one that God himself often takes with respect to us. It's an honorable role and it needs to be honored. However, having said that, I think we have to say still that there is a helping and supporting role that is different from the role of being a leader in the marriage. And Paul sees it as important, and over in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man, and he sees that as supporting distinctions in how men and women should look when they come into church. So that's number six. Number seven, the conflict, the conflict. The curse brought a distortion of previous roles, not the introduction of new roles. A distortion of previous roles. So in Genesis 3.16, God says uh, this. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your, I I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What does desire mean here? I do not believe that desire means sexual desire, as some people sort of perhaps naively on the surface assume that it means. The reason I don't believe that is this is in the context of judgment and punishment imposed as a curse. The rest of the Bible does not view sexual desire within marriage as something that's that's a curse or something that's given uh, by God as judgment. It uh, views sexual desire within marriage as something very positive, and I'm very thankful for that. and so I think it's, it's contrary to, the, to the, the teaching of all of Scripture to view this as a, as a sexual desire. But what kind of desire would that be then? There are two Hebrew words here uh, that I want to talk about. First, the word translated desire. Um, and if we could go to the next slide. I will, greatly, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for, and in the ESV, in the margin, we translated it, or against. Your desire will be against. And I hope next time we revise it, we'll get that into the text. Um, and the reason is this. This construction, teshuka plus L, only occurs, the, the word teshuka only occurs two other times in the Bible, and teshuka plus this preposition L only occurs one other time in the Bible, and it's very nearby. It's right at Genesis 4-7, where God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Same construction, Teshuka plus L. It seems to mean an inward urge or impulsion with the L against someone, a hostile urge. And that's the, that fits Genesis 4-7, where where God says to Cain, it's as if sin is like maybe a lion crouching outside the door. And when you walk out, its desire is to pounce on you and overcome you. It's a hostile desire against you. That's clearly the sense 
in Genesis 4, 7. And I think that God allowed that instance of Teshuka plus El to be there in the very same book by the very same author just a few verses later so that we could get a clear sense from the use in context what that word meant in Genesis 3.16. It means that God was saying to Eve, you're going to have an aggressive, hostile desire to resist your husband's leadership. Your desire will be against your husband. And he will rule over you. Mashal. That Hebrew word mashal is used in the Old Testament many, many times. And it's used to indicate rule by greater power or strength. Sometimes it's used of God ruling over the universe. A superior over an inferior. Other times it's used of harsh rule like the Philistines ruling over Israel. Mashal. They would rule over them harshly. And I think what God is saying here is not only Eve is going to have an aggressive desire to resist her husband's leadership, but Adam is going to come back and and respond to that or uh, respond aggressively to that so he'll rule by just the fact that he's stronger and he's more aggressive and there will be conflict. The picture then is this. Prior to the fall... Adam and Eve were equal in God's sight, yet there was a leadership role for Adam, and they lived in joyful harmony in marriage together. At the fall, God introduced punishment into their relationship in this way. First, there was pain in the particular area of Eve's responsibility, pain in childbearing. Second, there was pain in Adam's particular area of responsibility, in in raising food from the ground, thorns and thistles it would bring forth for him. In the sweat of his face he would eat food. So pain in childbearing, pain in raising food, and then God also introduces pain into their relationship. Eve, your desire is going to be a hostile, aggressive one against your husband. He's going to rule over you harshly by virtue of greater strength and force. And here comes the relationship, damaged, distorted by the fall. We should never use Genesis 3.16 to teach male headship in marriage. Genesis 3.16 is the curse. It's, It's the punishment that God brought because his justice required it. Just as we should never, it would be hateful ever to think we should try to increase pain in childbearing. Just as it would be hateful and foolish to think we should ever plant more weeds in our garden so the crops won't grow. So it would be foolish to say that Genesis 3.16, we want to encourage this conflict that God brought as judgment. Rather, from Genesis 3.16 onward, the whole purpose of God in the history of redemption is to overcome the effects of the fall. And so, and to overcome the curse through the redemptive work that he promised and then fulfilled in Christ. And so we should seek to alleviate pain in childbearing as best we can. We should seek to eliminate weeds from our gardens and our fields as best we can. And we should seek to eliminate this conflict that was introduced as a a judgment on Adam and Eve at the fall, introduced in God's justice, but which he desires to overcome. Reason number eight, reason number eight for male headship before the fall is the restoration. If, in fact, this is the right understanding of Teshuka plus Mashal, if it's the right understanding of Genesis 3.16, what we would expect to find in the New Testament is an undoing of that conflict. And in fact, that's exactly what we do find. We find in Colossians 3.18, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, 
Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So, wives, be subject to your husbands. Submit to your husbands. That's an undoing of this Teshuka El. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. No more of this mashal. It's undone. And redemption in Christ thus clearly restores the created order, the harmony and joy together with male leadership that was there in marriage from the beginning. Reason number nine, the mystery, the mystery. We look at Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, where Paul speaks about marriage. And here Paul says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In my Bible, and I'm quite sure it's in your Bible as well, that is shown as a quotation, has quotation marks around it, because it is a quotation directly from the Old Testament. Paul is looking back in the Old Testament to teach about what marriage should be. And he doesn't go back to anything that was tainted by sin. He goes all the way back to Genesis 2. And he quotes Genesis 2 before there was sin and says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now watch this. He says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In Paul's thinking, a mystery was something that was hidden and only vaguely revealed in the Old Testament, but that Paul now discloses and explains more clearly. And he says that if you go all the way back in the Old Testament to the beginning, Adam and Eve, in their relationship as God created them, they were a mystery. Now he says, I'm going to tell you what it meant. It meant Christ and the church. Adam and Eve didn't know it. But when God created them, he created them so that in their relationship, they would be a picture of Christ and the church. And that means that God created marriage in itself and that God created all marriages for all times to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And in that relationship, Paul says, just in the preceding verses in Ephesians 5, he says that the husband stands in the place of Christ or represents Christ and the wife stands in the place of church of the church and represents the church. And that's why he can say, just a few verses earlier, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that's why he can also say, in verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. It's because God intends all marriages, all cultures, all society, all time, around the world, throughout history, marriages are intended by God to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. And the roles in that relationship are not the same. There are differences. And so that's the mystery. Finally, number 10, the parallel with the Trinity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. I'm going to talk in a few minutes in more detail about this, so I'll just mention it here. It's a tenth reason anchored in the nature of the Trinity, in the nature of the being of God. But I'll pass over that for the moment. All right, so it seems then there are multiple reasons why we can see that there was a a leadership role. In their equality, Adam had a leadership role that Eve did not have. But then someone might say, well, all right, but how does that work? How does it work in practice? In our own marriage, Margaret and I talk frequently and at length about many decisions. Sometimes there are small decisions. Where should we go for a walk together? 
or uh, sometimes they're large decisions. Uh, about three years ago, it was buying a house, and we talk at length. In those cases, when we talk, we, we listen to each other's viewpoints. We often defer to each other. I defer to Margaret's wishes, and she often defers to mine because we love each other. In almost every case, each of us has some wisdom that the other one does not have. And we've learned to listen to each other and place much trust in each other's judgments. Margaret's not here tonight, but if, if she were, I would say publicly in, in her presence, and I'll say it to you in her absence, I have tremendous confidence in her. She prays, she loves God, she's tremendously sensitive to God, she has a heart that's just submissive to and obedient to God, and I, and I just value her judgment more than any, other, than any other person on the earth. Usually we reach agreement. Seldom will I do something that she doesn't think is wise. But in every decision, whether large or small, and whether we have reached agreement or not, the responsibility to make the decision still rests with me. Now, I'm not talking about areas of life where Margaret has independent judgment and there are areas of her responsibility, her, her, her calendar of ministry activities she's engaged in. And she manages a lot larger part of the family budget that I manage because she takes care of all the household bills and I buy books. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so there are areas of distinct responsibility. And I, she doesn't try to talk to me about who I schedule in my office hours or what I put in my syllabus. Those are areas of my responsibility. But I'm talking about those multiple decisions that happen every day of our lives as married couples where there's a decision we have to make together. It's a family decision. And in those decisions... Even though we talk at length, the responsibility to make the decision still rests with me. I do not agree with people that say male headship only makes a difference once every 10 years when you can't reach agreement. I think rather there is in the marriage relationship a subtle, quiet, but very clear understanding that there is a focus of the decision-making process and it belongs to the husband. Sometimes an analogy will help. Perhaps you've been in a workplace situation where two or three or four people are working, and if, you, if, if an outsider walked into the, into the business or into the shop, an outsider might not be able to tell who the boss was. But everybody knows who the boss is. If you have a good working relationship, that's the person that everybody turns to to make the, to make the call, to make the decision. And through the day, there's an acknowledgement that there's a leadership role there. And if you sat and watched for 15 or 20 minutes in a business, you probably could recognize who the boss is. And so it is, I think, in marriage. There's, there's an acknowledgement that the focus of decision-making responsibility belongs to the husband. That's not because I'm a wiser or more gifted leader. It's because I'm the husband. And God has given me that responsibility. And in the face of cultural pressures to the contrary, I will not forsake this male headship. I will not deny this male headship, and I will not be embarrassed by it. It is good, it is positive, it brings blessing to our marriage and joy and peace, and Margaret and I are both thankful for it. But that doesn't mean that a husband, as the head of the family, has the right to be selfish and to put his own interests first. In fact, in that same passage in which Paul said that wives are to be subject to husbands and said that husbands are to love their wives, he says this very amazing statement, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
For many years, I wasn't quite sure what that meant. And then, about four years ago, um, something happened in our, in our family. Margaret, after an auto accident in Chicago, had been experiencing some chronic pain because it was aggravated by cold and humidity. And if you live in Chicago, you have cold in the winter, you have humidity in the summer. So it wasn't a very good place. But we didn't know there was any solution to that. Friends allowed us to use, offered to let us use a second home they had, a vacation home they had uh, in the Phoenix area in Mesa, Arizona. So we took them up on it. We got out there. It was dry. It was hot. And Margaret felt better. So a few months later, they said, why don't you, you can go out there again? So uh, we went again, and she felt better again. And I said, well, Margaret, I, I, I'd be happy to move here, except um, I can only do one thing. I can teach at a seminary, and there aren't any seminaries here. Well, the next day, Margaret was looking in the Yellow Pages, and she said, Wayne, there's something here called Phoenix Seminary. And then I looked and I realized, yes, I'd heard there was a seminary that had been started a number of years ago as an extension of Western Conservative Baptist Seminary in Portland, and I'd heard that it was struggling, and I didn't know much more about it. Well, we looked into it. Uh, we drove over there and looked, and, I, and we didn't say anything, but I, I looked and I said, Margaret, I have more books than this. <laughs> it was small. <laughs> But you know what happened? Uh, One thing led to another. God was at work in that seminary. A Bible college went out of business, gave the seminary 50,000 books. There was an instant library. And uh, some other things happened, and there was new leadership in the Phoenix area, and the seminary was starting to grow. Anyway, to make a long story short, I phoned the academic dean, Steve Tracy, and said, you think you might have a job for me here? And one thing led to another, and in in the Lord's uh, goodness and graciousness, we ended up at Phoenix Seminary, and that's, that's how we got there. And I went from a faculty of 55 to a faculty of 8, a uh, student body of uh, 1,500 at Trinity to a student body of uh, was 200-some. Now it's just a little over 300. Uh, but what was it? What was the key thing in that decision-making process? It was this verse. In God's providence, the very day in which we were focused on trying to decide if this was the right thing to do, Ephesians 5.28, was the verse I came to, and I'd been leading up to it for months in a regular pattern of reading through the Bible, and I came to this verse that very day in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And I thought, if I were experiencing the pain that Margaret was experiencing, would I move? Yes. (laughs) I asked Margaret if she thought I would move. Yes, she thought. (laughs) Very clearly. And so if I would move for my own body, and if I'm supposed to love my wife as my own body, then shouldn't I move for the sake of her physical well-being? Well, there's more to the story than that. She didn't want to abandon the ministry that God had given me at Trinity. The seminary then in Phoenix uh, gave some wonderful provisions for me to be able to write more, and then Margaret thought maybe it would help my ministry too, and she was willing to go and... um, God brought us there, and there's just been wonderful blessing. But I just say that because it does not, male headship does not mean being selfish. It just means that the focal point of making decisions is with you as a husband. Yet there are dangers of distortion in one direction or another. If we put this biblical pattern into practice in our daily lives, there can be errors of aggressiveness or errors of passivity. And I put a chart up here. How does it work in practice? In the middle is the biblical ideal of loving, humble headship for the husband. And 
and joyful, intelligent submission for the wife. She's participating joyfully, but intelligently and in an informed way in the decision-making process in the family. The distortion on the left side is a distortion of passivity, where a husband opts out of any leadership. The children are misbehaving. He doesn't do anything about it. The roof is leaking. As it says in Proverbs, he does nothing about it. Um, there is an angry neighbor causing trouble, and he won't step up to the plate and deal with it. There's problems with relatives, and he won't deal with it. The family's not going to church. He won't deal with it. He just sits down, maybe just watches TV and turns out, tunes out. What is he? He's a wimp. He's forsaken his leadership role. The parallel to that on the part of a wife is a wife who doesn't ever participate in the decision-making process, but for 30, 40, 50 years of marriage just says, yes, dear, whatever you say, yes, dear, whatever you say, and doesn't contribute the God-given wisdom that she has. And we would say she is a doormat, I suppose. That's an error of passivity. On the other side are errors of aggressiveness, where a husband can become harsh and selfish and demanding, and we would say he's a tyrant. That's that mashal kind of leadership. Or a wife can become a usurper, always challenging her husband's leadership, always competing with him for leadership and not submitting to it. She is a usurper. Now, if you have a tyrant married to a usurper, you have fireworks and conflict all the time, and they're on their way to a divorce, probably. If you have a tyrant married to a doormat, you have horrible kinds of abuse that occur. If you have a usurper married to a wimp, she walks around six feet in front of him, and he comes behind carrying her luggage. I think husband should carry luggage, so I didn't mean... <laughs> Carrying her purse, maybe. (laughs) And if you have a wimp married to a doormat, (laughs) nothing ever gets done. And this is, it's like the Energizer bunny running out of batteries. But in the center is the biblical ideal. Now, you know your own personality, you know your own background, you know your own temperament. Every single one of us has tendencies to err on one side or another of this chart. And in fact, it can vary. You can err on one side when you're home and another side when you go to visit your in-laws or in your church, even. We can only maintain that biblical balance by constantly walking with the Lord in prayer, walking in fellowship with his people and remaining and, and praying for his guidance and help so that our hearts are right and we maintain that biblical ideal. Now, there are some egalitarian objections to what I've said about male headship. Let's see, Kara, what? Yes, some egalitarian objections. I'm just going to mention these briefly. The primary objection is Galatians 3.28. Doesn't Galatians 3.28 says in Christ, doesn't it say that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. It does say that, but it doesn't say what egalitarians want it to say. They want it to say we're the same. It doesn't say we're the same. It says we're united. A former student at Trinity, now campus crusade director at Duke, Richard Hove, did an MA thesis at Trinity on this verse, and it was published. He took all a whole number of instances of this Greek construction for the verb to be, Amy, and the, and the number one, haste me a hen, when they were combined. And he found that when... When the Bible talks about things, different things that are one, it never obliterates the differences. You are many members, but one body. Well, you see, that kind of construction 
but you're different. But there's a unity. So what this verse teaches in Galatians 3.28 is unity, but it doesn't teach sameness. It doesn't teach sameness. And so even with slaves and free in the first century, Paul didn't want them immediately to ignore their uh, economic status and just act as if it didn't exist, but there was to be a unity and not a, not a jealousy or a superiority or pride in the church, in their relationship. And there shouldn't be a division in the church. They are to be one. Objection number two, mutual submission. Egalitarians bring this up, and it looks good to us, and we sometimes are tempted to say, oh, I believe in mutual submission too. Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting to one another. Uh, out of reverence for Christ. But I do not think that we should accept the idea of mutual submission in the way that egalitarians teach it. They teach it in in the sense that it would obliterate all male headship or distinctive male headship in marriage. So an egalitarian woman might say, sure, I'll be subject to my husband as soon as he is subject to me. Mutual submission in that sense. The reason the passage does not teach that, well, there are several reasons, but one reason is the context. The context shows three kinds of submission. Wives be subject to your husbands, children be subject to your parents, and servants or slaves be subject to masters. Those are not reversible. Imagine what would happen if we taught mutual submission in an egalitarian sense in that passage, children be subject to your parents. Julie, it's time for you to go to bed. No, Daddy, it's time for you to go to bed. (laughs) That just wouldn't work, would it? Being mutually subject to our children. Now, if people mean by mutual submission, if they mean being respectful and thoughtful and kind and considerate, fine. The Bible teaches that. We are to love one another. But this verse does not teach that. And the reason this verse does not teach it is, one, the context, context is contrary to it. Paul never says, husbands, be subject to your wives. It's wives, be subject to your husbands. The context. Number two, the meaning of the Greek word hupotasso. This Greek word hupotasso in interpersonal relationships, always, 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 inside the Bible, outside the Bible, it always means to be subject to the authority of someone who is an authority over you. And so uh, we cannot, I think, deny the meaning of that word. And then third, the third reason is that the one another and be subject to one another does sometimes mean some to others. And that's, I think, the sense that it has here in Ephesians 5.21. It means be subject to the people who are in authority over you. I think for sake of time, I won't... I'll just mention one. In the book of Revelation, it says men were killing one another. That does not mean every single person on the battlefield was killing every every single other person. It just means some were killing others. It doesn't mean the dead people got up then and killed the people who had killed them. It's just some, some to others, right? Or when you... Am I making sense here? Have I lost you? No? Okay, this word one another. Yeah, sometimes it means everybody to everybody. Love one another. It means everybody to everybody. But other times it means some people to others. When you come together, Paul says about the Lord's Supper, when you come together, wait for one another. Well, that can't mean everybody waits for everybody. That's like the two cars come to a crossing and neither shall proceed until the other has cleared the crossing. It, right? If, if, if you all wait for one... It means the people who are there early should wait for the ones who are there late. Some wait for others. When you come together, wait for one another. And so here, be subject to one another means some be subject to others. Be subject to the persons who are in authority over you. 
I had a teaching assistant do a study one time, and then I don't think it was Jeff. I think it was Roy Christians um, uh, do a study, and then Dan Doriani at Covenant Seminary confirmed this. No interpreter in the history of the church prior to 1968 thought that Ephesians 5.21, be subject to one another, obliterated male headship in marriage. No inter- the, the egalitarian view of mutual submission in Ephesians 5.21 is a novelty in the history of the church, and it's, I think, lexically indefensible because the meaning of hupotasso will not allow it. Third objection from egalitarians. Head doesn't mean authority, it means source. Uh, egalitarians will say, uh, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. They'll say that means source. Christ gave birth to the church. Husband is the head of the wife means Adam was the source of Eve. Well, put aside for one moment, the I think the decisive objection, it was true perhaps of Adam and Eve, but it's not true of husbands and wives ever since then. So it can't really be a true meaning. I'm not the source of Margaret in any, in any sense at all nor are any of you husbands here the source of your wives. So it's, it's just a nonsensical interpretation from the start. But, but this verse, you see, the whole ballgame is at stake here. It's everything. It's, the whole, it's, 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 it's everything at stake because if, in fact, head means person in authority, and the Bible says the husband is the head of the wife, then the ballgame's over. Egalitarians have lost. You know, there are no more innings to play. It's, it's done. Husband is authority over the wife. So they have to find an alternative explanation for this word head. They have to. Otherwise, they've lost. Otherwise they must just close up their office and go home, which would be a good idea. But... <laughs> so do you see how crucial it is? Well, they've labored mightily, labored mightily for 20 years trying any place they can in all of ancient Greek literature to find any example that would disprove this idea that if person A is the head of person B, it would disprove the idea that person A has authority over person B. The problem is they can't find any. They propose the idea of source, where head, has, head means source, like the head of a river is the source of a river. Um, well, so I, I was concerned about that uh, one time. And I decided to look up some examples of the Greek word kephale. So I went to the library and uh, looked up 2,336 examples of the Greek word kephale in ancient literature from Homer, 8th century B.C., all the way on to the 4th century A.D. It took a little while. And, <laughs> and, and I, I read more examples of one soldier cutting off the head of another one in battle than I ever want to read again. Um, and you read all sorts of stuff like that. But what I found was over 50 examples where a person in a position of authority is called the head. The Roman emperor is called the head of the empire. The general is called the head of the army. The bishops of the churches are called the heads of the churches. Husband is called the head of the wife. Christ is called the head of the church, etc. David is called the heads of the tribes or the heads of the nations over which he rules. The leaders of the tribes of Israel called the heads of the tribes. Always, always, always when it refers to persons... Person A is the head of person B means person A has authority over person B. There are now over 50 examples of that. No counterexamples ever. I did find one example in Chrysostom, uh, the early church father, where a woman is said to be the head of her maidservant. Just proves the point. She has authority over her maidservant. So, 
No other example. So it means person in authority. Let's look at the next slide, Kara. Just to put one more kind of conclusion on this argument. In 1997, I, I had written an article on the study of Kefale, and then somebody tried to answer it, and then I wrote another article that was more than 50 pages on Kefale. And when it was published in Trinity Journal, I decided to send a copy of it to the editor of the Little and Scott Greek-English Lexicon. This is a book as big as the, I don't know, it's as big as the, as the standalone Merriam-Webster dictionary that you find on a table by itself in the, in the library. It's, this, it's a huge reference book. It's the authoritative reference book uh, published by Oxford University Press for all of ancient Greek. I didn't know who the editor was. I just sent it. Editor, Little Scott Lexicon, Oxford, England. A few days, or well, a few weeks later, I don't know, I got back this letter, and this is from uh, Peter Glare, P.G.W. Glare. Before I read the letter, I want to say that I said in a professional society meeting, this man is an expert in ancient Greek, a leading expert in ancient Greek. Afterward, Dan Wallace from Dallas Seminary came up to me, and he said, Wayne, you don't need to say that Peter Glare is an expert in ancient Greek. Peter Glare is without peer in the world. A little later, I found out the reason for that. I went and visited him in Oxford. But this was after the letter. And I talked to him. I said, how long have you been here at Oxford working on Greek and Latin dictionaries? He said, 50 years. He edited the Oxford Latin Dictionary. Then he edited the supplement to the Little and Scott lexicon. I said, well, Peter, how many classes have you taught in those 50 years? He said, oh, none. He's just done research for 50 years. Fourth floor of a library surrounded by Greek books. He knows more about the meaning of ancient Greek. I think I can say that without fear of question or challenge. He knows more about the meaning of ancient Greek than any living, hum living human being. Here's the letter. Dear Professor Grudem, thank you for sending me the copy of your article on Kephale. The Greek script didn't come through here, but it was here. All right. It was in his letter. The entry under this word in Little Scott Jones is not very satisfactory. I was unable to revise the longer articles in LSJ when I was preparing the latest supplement since I did not have the financial resources to carry out a full-scale revision. I have no time at the moment to discuss all your examples individually, and in any case, I am in broad agreement with your conclusions. Those italics are mine. Well, you would do that, too. <laughs> I might just make one or two generalizations. Kephale is the word normally used to translate the Hebrew rosh. Varro was, it's rosh. And, and, and this does seem frequently to denote leader or chief without much reference to its original anatomical sense. And here it seems perverse to deny authority. Amen. The supposed sense source, of course, does not exist. If Peter Glare says the sense source does not exist, the sense source does not exist. And it was at least unwise of Little and Scott to mention the word. At the most, they should have said applied to the source of a river in respect of its position and it's the river's course. By New Testament, what that means is that the, 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 the beginning of a river or the end of a river could be called the head because just like the ends of a... 
In modern Greek, the two ends of a rope are called the kephali, the, the heads of a rope. Two end, or the ends of a column, the top of a column is called a head. Or the end of a, po- of a pole is called the head of the pole. So river, ends of the river. But it doesn't mean anything like source. It just means the beginning point. By New Testament times, the Septuagint had been well established, and one would only expect that a usage found frequently, and it would come easily to a writer such as St. Paul. If Here we are faced with the inadequacies of little Scott Jones. If they had clearly distinguished between, for example, the head is the seat of the intellect and emotions, and therefore the director of the body's actions, and the head is the extremity of the human or animal body, and so on, these figurative examples would naturally be attached to the end of the selection they belong to, and the author's attention would be clear. I hasten to add that in most cases, the sense of the head as being the controlling agent is the one required. And the idea of preeminence seems to me to be quite unsuitable. And there are still cases where kephale can be understood as in the Septuagint in its transferred sense of head or leader. Once again, thank you for sending me the article. I shall file it in the hope that one day we will be able to embark on a more thorough revision of the lexicon. Yours sincerely, Peter Glare. Well, does head mean person in authority? Yes. No contrary examples have ever been found. Egalitarians should close up their office and go home, I think. The the equality and differences between men and women reflect the equality and differences in the Trinity. That sounds obscure, but be careful here. This is at the heart of the controversy. It shows why much more is at stake than the meaning of one or two words or one or two verses. Here we're talking about the nature of God. Paul says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This means that there is an authority relationship between the husband and the wife that parallels the relationship between the father and the son. The father and son in the Trinity are equal in in deity, equal in attributes, but different in role. The son is obedient to and subject to the authority of the father. And husband and wife are equal in value, but different in role. Other scripture passages with the role of leadership and authority with respect to the Son. I'll just mention some of these. Ephesians 1.4 talks about this relationship before the foundation of the world. The Father chose us in the Son. That means the Father was Father. The Son was Son. He chose us. He had the initiating, leading role. Romans 8.29, He predestined us. That's before the foundation of the world, to be conformed to the image of the Son. The egalitarians say there wasn't any difference between the Father and the Son in authority before creation, but these verses disprove it. Next verses. John 3.16 proves this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. The Father had to be Father before He could give His Son. John 1.3, here's the pattern. All things were made through the Son. The Father created through the Son. Hebrews 1.2, through the Son He created all things. Next verse. 1 Corinthians 8.6, one God the Father from whom are all things and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things. Things initiate with the Father and they're carried out through the obedience of the Son. And he is at the right hand of God, Romans 8.34. In the next passage, Hebrews 1.3, he sits at the right hand of God. Many other passages as well. 1 Corinthians 15.28 talks about the distant future. When all things are subjected to the Son, then the Son himself will be subject to him who subjected all things to him. So from eternity past in predestination and planning redemption and in creation to eternity future in the, in the eternal new heavens and new earth the son is subject to the authority of the father the son is at the right hand of the father but he is at the right hand this means that the idea of headship and submission in personal relationship did not begin with the council on biblical manhood and womanhood in 1987 <laughs> 
It didn't begin with a few patriarchal men in a patriarchal society in the Old Testament. It did not begin with Adam and Eve's fall into sin in Genesis 3. The idea of headship and submission did not even begin with the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 1 to 2. No, the idea of headship and submission in interpersonal relationship began before creation in the relationship between the Father and Son in the Trinity. The Father has a leadership role and authority to initiate and direct that the Son does not have. When then did the idea of headship and submission begin? Be- begin. The idea of headship and submission never began. It has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. And in this most basic of all authority relationships, authority is not based on gifts or ability because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is subject to the Son and the Father, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in attributes and perfections. Authority is not based on gifts or ability. It is just there. Authority belongs to the Father, not because He's wiser or more powerful, but because He is the Father. Authority and submission between the Father and the Son is is the fundamental difference between the persons of the Trinity and then between the Father and Son on the one hand and the Holy Spirit who is subject to both of them on the other. This is the fundamental difference between them. They do not differ in any attributes, just in how they relate to each other. And that relationship difference is one of leadership and authority on the part of the Father and voluntary, willing submission to that authority on the part of the Son. We can learn from this that submission to an authority is a noble virtue. It's a privilege. It's something good and desirable. It is the virtue that has been demonstrated by the eternal Son of God forever. It is His glory, glory as of the Son from the Father. We tend to think, at least our society tends to think, if you're in authority, you're the boss, that's good. If you're under authority, that's not good. But that's the world's viewpoint. It's not true. Submission to an authority is a good thing in itself. Authority and submission with mutual giving of honor is the most fundamental and most glorious interpersonal relationship in the universe. It allows there to be differences without better or worse. And when we begin to dislike the idea of authority in itself, not distortions, but authority in itself, we begin to dislike something very deep. We begin to dislike God himself. Now this creates a problem for our egalitarian friends. They say, if you have male headship, you can't be equal. If you're equal, you don't have male headship. And we say, you can have both. Look at the Trinity. You have headship and equality. And they should have said, okay, in God, you're right. (laughs) You can have both equality and difference in role. Some did. Craig Keener did. But some prominent egalitarians have taken a different direction that is very troubling. Gilbert Bilizekian, Stanley Grenz, have begun to teach that there is mutual submission in the Trinity, saying the Father also submits to the Son, though no passage of the Bible says this, and no Orthodox teacher in the history of the Christian church has ever said it for 2,000 years. Now they are saying it. So deep is their commitment to an egalitarian view of men and women in marriage, which has no unique leadership role for the husband, that they will tamper with the doctrine of the Trinity in order to maintain their position. It's very serious. Once we begin destroying interpersonal relationships within the Trinity, I think we open the floodgates to destroying all differences among human beings. That's key issue number three, the Trinity. Key issue number four, the equality and differences between men and women are very good. 
you and I should rejoice at the differences as well as the equality between men and women. We should laugh with delight at it. We should proclaim it with trumpets and in songs. But we hesitate. Why? God saw male and female and he said it was very good. And if it's very good, it means it's fair. Egalitarians argue it's not fair. How can it be fair if you have women who have leadership roles in businesses and government? How should, why, why can you say it's fair for them to be subject to their husbands in the home? But if it's based on God's assignment of roles, then it is fair. Does the son say to the father, it's not fair. You've been in charge for four billion years. Now it's my turn for the next four billion. No. Of course not. He says, I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is within my heart. It's fair. And this created order is best for us because it's from a wise creator. This view is not anti-woman. It's the only view that implements God's wise plan for women and for men. It truly honors women and men. It does not lead to abuse but guards against it. It does not suppress women's gifts as people have sometimes in the past but encourages them. The created order is beautiful. God took delight in it. It reflects his character. And we should delight in it as well. Why is it beautiful? Because in creating man and woman to be equal but different, God brings about an amazing unity to people who are so different. And that beauty finds one expression in our sexuality in marriage. That's why I think it says in Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold tightly to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. As husband and wife within marriage, human beings find that we are most attracted to the parts of us that are most different. And in our physical unity, in our physical and emotional and spiritual unity, in our sexuality, we find then that in that union as God intended, there is no dehumanization of women, there is no emasculation of men, but there is equality and honor, and there is great and wonderful and deep human joy. So sex within marriage is God's testimony to the fact that we can have equality and difference and unity all at the same time. Within our human sexuality, as it finds expression in marriage, there are all three. There is equality, there is difference, there is unity, and there is great joy. Praise God. Glory to God. Key issue number five. Our view of manhood and womanhood is a watershed issue that tests our obedience to the Bible. How is it that egalitarianism is making progress? If it's disproven by meanings of Greek words, if it's disproven by abundant testimony of Scripture from Genesis all the way through the Bible, if it's disproven by actually our own sense of what is right and wrong, if it's disproven by so many things, by even the analogy with the Trinity, how can it advance? Well, here are the ways that egalitarianism advances as I've kind of dealt with this issue for the last 20 years. First, it advances through incorrect interpretations of Scripture. Like the one I talked about, mutual submission. I think that's just a misunderstanding. Or Galatians 3.28, saying we have the same roles, instead of saying we're, we're one. B, it advances through reading into Scripture things that aren't there. 
And I've read a lot of egalitarian writings lately, and they tell us that Abraham obeyed Sarah, or Proverbs 31 overturns male leadership in the family. That's Gilbert Bilizekian. Or the widows in 1 Timothy 5 were elders. That's Linda Belleville. Or people, women who owned homes in the New Testament were overseers who supervised churches. That's Linda Belleville as well. Or that Deborah led Israel into battle. Read the passage in Judges 4. She didn't. Deborah affirmed male leadership. That's reading into the Bible things that just aren't there and people believe it. Number three, incorrect assumptions about the meanings of words in the Bible. Uh, A common thing in egalitarianism is to claim that all the English translations of the Bible are wrong and most or all of the standard Greek dictionaries are wrong and some new meaning should be accepted for key words like head or helper, suitable for him, or uh, have authority really means some very strange things. Uh, D, it advances through incorrect assumptions about the history of the ancient world, like the claim that women weren't well enough educated in the ancient world, and both men and women had basic literacy skills, Uh, or that women were teaching false doctrine, or women were disrupting the worship services at Corinth. And these claims are repeated over and over again, so they take the status of fact in people's minds, but investigation into the ancient world just shows that they're depending on things that aren't true. E, five, methods of interpretation that reject the authority of Scripture. Here's what worries me a lot. The others worry me, too, because people are believing falsehoods. Those are those two, three, and four. They're believing things that aren't true, and there you'll go astray. But here you deny the authority of Scripture. I do not think this is just a difference over Bible interpretation. In many cases, interpretations by egalitarians are deeply troubling because they reject the authority of Scripture as the Word of God for us. Claims like by William Webb that Genesis 1 to 2 is not historically accurate. Or William Webb, again, this is InterVarsity Press. The New Testament ethic regarding male headship needs further improvement. Improve on the New Testament ethic. Or Gordon Fee, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 to 35 is not part of the Bible. Just take it out. Or um, uh, R.T. France. Uh, Paul and other New Testament authors are moving in a trajectory toward full inclusion of women in leadership. They didn't quite get there, but we should... Go beyond the New Testament to where they were going. Or Kevin Giles recently, InterVarsity Press. We can't decide theological questions on the basis of the Bible. We just have to see what the history of the church was and then go with that. That's leading us toward Roman Catholicism. It's not leading us toward submission to Scripture. Or the claim that these these leadership texts for men in the New Testament were culturally relative. Many people saying that. Or another approach is, it just depends on what verse you decide to emphasize, and you come out with different views. That's denying the authority of Scripture. Or another one, the Assemblies of God position paper on this topic said, basically, Christians differ. It's impossible to decide what the Bible teaches on this subject, but we know that women are effective in ministry, therefore it must be right. If you take that view, it's impossible to decide what the Bible means. What that does, in effect, is it silences the Bible to be able to speak to the issue because you bring up a Bible verse and people just say, well, scholars differ on it. So you can't use the Bible anymore. That's denying the authority of Scripture. Another one is women can teach or have authority if they do so under the authority of the pastors or elders. Hello? The pastors and elders can tell me to disobey the Bible? Or another one, we, uh, we can do what the Bible says not to do because we're not a church. We just move next door. We're a different kind of organization. These are ways of rejecting the authority of Scripture that are invading the evangelical world. Then another category of interpretation, number six, rejecting Scripture as authority and deciding on the basis of experience and personal in- inclination. That is people saying that God has blessed this ministry and therefore it must be right. 
Finally, a very disturbing thing, suppression of information. On a number of occasions, I have observed a pattern of conduct by which a pastor will lead a church in an egalitarian direction through suppression of relevant information and refusal to offer fair opportunity for any competent expressions of a complementarian position. Here's what happens. Typically, a pastor will read some egalitarian books and become convinced that they are right. He'll then seek out allies or work to establish allies for his position as a dominant group in the board of elders. Then he'll preach a series of sermons promoting the egalitarian viewpoint. If anyone objects, he and his fellow elders label that person as divisive and say they're wrongly opposing the church's leadership. If they say we want an opportunity to express a complementarian position, he'll say people already know that viewpoint. They don't need to hear it again. Though, in fact, many people have never heard a responsible articulation of a complementarian view that's interacted with the recent writings. So what we have in the church, then, is pastor and elders who have a lot of egalitarian literature arrayed against instinctive complementarians. And these instinctive complementarians have to support their view. All they have is an instinct or a traditional preference, but no persuasive arguments or facts with which to answer the fruits of 30 years of academic research by egalitarian scholars. When these instinctive complementarians try to cite Bible verses opposing the pastor's view... He will answer with arguments from egalitarian authors, such as those I've just mentioned. Often the pastor will say, well, scholar A and scholar B say you're wrong, therefore you must be wrong. Those arguments are hard to answer because the instinctive complementarians lack technical training and lack time and research facilities to answer egalitarian scholars. In this way, the use of the Bible by instinctive complementarians is effectively nullified. It is thus a mismatch from the beginning. Even if opportunity is given for a forum to present a complementarian view, and I'm giving experience from just hearing about a huge church in Michigan that just did this. Even if opportunity is given for a forum to present a complementarian view, it may be at an inconvenient time or in a small room or will not be adequately publicized, and verbal commitments to allow such a meeting may be withdrawn or changed at the last minute or the sound system doesn't work, something like that. In every way possible, expression of a complementarian position will be minimized and marginalized and suppressed. Egalitarianism, basically, I'm saying, is not playing fair. It's not playing fair with facts. It's not paying fair with the Bible, and it's a watershed issue. I really think it is increasingly coming a situation, as Francis Schaeffer said about inerrancy, people may seem close together when they differ just on this at the beginning, but later, and especially those who follow after them and follow in their footsteps, the difference will be farther and farther apart. So that evangelicalism is, I think, dividing into groups, a group that is subject to the authority of God's word as the absolute divine standard by which we must govern our lives, and another group that is learning dozens of procedures for evading the effective authority of Scripture in our lives. It's a watershed issue. The Bible is at stake. Randy said our marriages are at stake. They are. Our children are at stake. They are. Our view of God is at stake. It is. And our marriages are at stake. And, and the Bible is at stake as well. The progress is very clear. First, you deny exclusive male leadership in the church. Next, you deny male headship in marriage. Next, you begin to ordain women as pastors. And the next step is saying 
homosexual desires are not contrary to Scripture, and then homosexual conduct in faithful relationships is not contrary to Scripture, and then homosexual conduct is allowed by Scripture in some cases, and then we're going to ordain homosexuals, and the Episcopal Church has done that, and the Methodist Church now, sadly, just a month ago, allowed that to happen as well. And you see it in one denomination after another going down that path, started with egalitarianism as a denial of the authority of the Word of God. What's going to happen in the future? I think egalitarianism is going to harm a lot of people. But I do not think for a minute that it's going to win. It's not, because Jesus said, I will build my church. And he says, Ephesians 5:27. his word says that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holier and without, and without blemish. He is perfecting his church. He's not going to give up. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He is not going to be defeated. You've been listening to a message by Wayne Grudem, which was given at our 2004 Leadership Conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, audio, and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.